0: Welcome to Where Next? Conversations with Matt Project Office, a design studio that crafts physical products for the digital age, bridging the gap between people and technology, the material world and the virtual. Where Next? is a new podcast series tackling the role design can play in shaping our everyday lives. Each episode, we invite an expert panel to pull apart a pressing social issue and discuss where design may be able to make a difference. My name is Ollie Stratford, I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Desenio, and I'm going to be moderating today's discussion, which is titled, Has Creativity Been Commoditized? Now, it's a slightly provocative question, but it's one that we thought was interesting, because today designers work in any number of different ways. We have systems designers, digital designers, industrial designers, furniture designer researchers, and everything in between. So the question is, what unites all these different forms of practice? One thing that comes up very frequently as characteristic of all types of design is this idea of creativity. Now, whatever else the designer may be, there's a feeling that they are essentially a creative figure. So that's one answer, except no one really seems to know exactly what creativity is. Most fields involve a degree of creativity, just as most fields also involve analysis and rigour. But this idea of creativity I think is a very seductive one, because it sounds exciting, it sounds thrilling, and I think crucially for a lot of people It's suggestive that whatever is creative brings value to whatever it touches. So for this reason, I think increasingly we see this idea of creativity being picked up by a huge number of brands and companies who are keen to position their own work as creative and to talk about it as such. But when everyone professes to be creative, does the term cease to have meaning? Does creativity start to become a buzzword? We have a really great panel today who I'm very happy to be joined by and I'm going to introduce them briefly and they'll tell you a little bit more about their work. So to begin with, we have Jay Oscoby, co-founder of Barbara Oscoby and Matt Project Office. Hi, Jay.
1: Hi. Uh, thank you very much. So I'm a designer. Um, which technically involves being creative. I started working professionally in inverted commas in the early 90s with my friend from the RCA, um, Royal College of Art, Ed Barber. We were doing architecture at the Royal College, but I'd done industrial design before. And then we just started working together straight out of school and um, have created, I suppose, three companies, Barberoscopy, as you said, which is sort of concentrates on furniture and authored work and Artwork and so on, Universal Design Studio, which is architecture and interiors, and Map Project Office, which is strategy-led industrial designs. I guess the work that we do encompasses quite a lot of what's traditionally considered creative enterprise.
0: Thanks, Jay. Next we have Oscar Smolikovsky, the CEO of Polaroid.
2: Hi, Oscar. Hi, Ali. Uh, thanks for the introduction. I'm Oscar. I'm, I'm chairman at Polaroid. I've been. With the company now for 11 years throughout its various phases since, uh, since the bankruptcy, basically. So, um, in, in 2009, that was impossible project. And I joined in 2012 to, to this impossible project. And then in 2017, we combined it all back together. Uh, the impossible project company, which was basically saving the instant film chemistry and the factory in, in the Netherlands. And, uh, the Polaroid brand, which was a separate company for those years between 2009 and, and 2017. We are also
0: joined by Mitzi
2: Aku, an interaction and visual designer and founder of the activist
0: platform and community, Where Are the Black Designers? Hi Mitzi.
3: Hi, my name is Mitzi and I'm an interaction designer and by day I am a product designer at a design agency and by night I run Where are The Black Designers? that serves to heal and amplify and just really support black creativity in relationship to the entire black spectrum.
0: Thanks, Mitzi. And last but not least, we have Andu Masebo, an independent designer and researcher.
4: Thank you for the introduction. Um, so as you said, I'm Andu Masebo. I'm a product and furniture designer. I have a background predominantly in, in kind of fabrication. So the making on an industry scale. Um, but my career as a product designer is quite, quite early. It's quite early stage. So in truth, I'm still kind of figuring out what it is I'm trying to achieve in my work, but ultimately, a lot of the time, what I find is I'm trying to bring new voices into the conversation of design. So whether that's shedding more light on the person making the object or kind of bringing in, not necessarily users, but uh, people that exist around um, the effects of design.
0: Well, I think that's a good place to start. Maybe an an opening question, which everyone I think can tackle, but Andrew, maybe we'll start with you, is this idea of what does creativity mean to you? Because I think often with when you bring it up, people talk about it in terms of this kind of free artistry, right? But actually, there are a huge number of constraints. How do you see creativity? What does that phrase mean to you?
4: I guess I guess the way I understand creativity is it's a kind of process of reorganizing information. So it requires you to invest time and energy in accumulating information through experience and then kind of applying um, a new way of thinking to that knowledge base as a way of applying it in a new and interesting way. And I think what what I find interesting about this is that truthfully for me as a designer, there are very few moments in my work when I'm being creative or when I see myself as being creative. Quite often I'm trying to kind of con- come to logical conclusions or extract truth or do something that makes sense. But actually the, the act of kind of, you know, inspiration or creativity is quite fleeting. And I would apply it more to, to moments when I'm not really designing, when I'm trying to think about a way I might enter a conversation with someone or, or speak to a professional that's got a bit more experience than me or kind of start conversations with manufacturers. That's, that's where you have to kind of apply creative thinking and tr- sort of think in new ways.
3: As soon as I hear creativity, the first thing that pops up into my mind is just like almost childlike curiosity and the fact that Feels like creativity starts when we are extremely young and it's something that we I feel like lose when we become adults. And how do we get back to that childlike thinking? Because I feel like it's probably, in my opinion, the most creative that we are, because it's just when we have the most unlimited imagination.
0: Jay, does that answer speak to your
1: experience as well? Is that your relationship with creativity? there 's almost a series of different layers of what you might call creative thinking or creativity. I think probably the most interesting one for me is some is a space that lurks just at the edge of my mental fingertips in my mind um, and it often it 's processing things without that aren 't necessarily conscious thoughts it 's like if you 're old enough to remember a Rolodex. it 's like this thing of information that 's constantly turning and occasionally stops and then gets kind of somehow ideas. Uh ideas for form objects, ideas for can making connections or ideas for even business structures and things like that just kind of happen. They percolate, they exist. But at the... F- further forward than that in my mind which is the more analytical part I think um, and the problem solving part that is almost like a different gearing which is sort of solving problems in a creative manner but it isn't quite the same as the really deep what I'd call deep creativity which is almost you know it's almost not even in your own mind it's somewhere out somewhere that's shared between all of us.
0: Oscar maybe you can weigh in as well and I'm interested in your perspective on this because like you said you've been active in Polaroid's product development over time. And you've also worked with designers, both designers within the company and external designers, right? You collaborated with teenage engineering in the past, for instance. How do you see that idea of creativity? What does it mean to you from your side?
2: Yeah, big, big question. I mean, uh, interesting to, to hear you guys talk about kind of two two aspects of it. The The, the more kind of problem solving rational one and then the one that kind of just comes to you i i find it very connected to solving problems i guess with 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 products and i guess design usually has like a set of limits and and problems to solve in terms of products it, it's even more so like you're trying to solve a problem for somebody in a magical way create an experience in a way that's that's great and and, and wonderful and, and and brings them joy i don't know i think from from a very early age, I just, you know, I, I grew up, uh, idolizing Apple, who I think basically put design so much more up on the ladder of different companies, uh, minds. And ultimately now everybody at least tries in some way, some less successfully than others, some more superficially than others, put that design front and center. So for me, in my first kind of product experience, when, when we did our first camera, that's when I collaborated with Teenage Engineering. Um because I just thought their design was incredible. It was just seemed like it came from outer space. And I was like, how can a synthesizer look like this? And then I was like, you know, we got to make a camera that looks incredible. And funnily enough, the camera looked great, but it wasn't a great camera. It didn't really work well because I prioritized it looking so well. and And I didn't realize that, you know, us being a small startup just means that we can't solve all the engineering problems and make it look crazy. <laughs> we kind of had to pick one or the other one and uh, i didn't without realizing it i picked the the crazy the crazy stuff um but going back to the to the to the creativity question and and that deeper um part of it to me it's like always in the subconscious always in the mind like these ideas in my view they definitely happen inside of your mind somewhere Uh, but like when you're sleeping (laughs) or like when you're, when you're thinking about something else and then they just kind of come and it feels like they're coming out of thin air. But I, I think I've felt a few times that, oh, it's because I like, I had that dream, uh, and it it like connects to like, it's like a solution to a problem that feels more elegant or, um, that feels just better or, or it's creative.
4: I love the way you've both kind of spoken about the idea that these things move around and how they can kind of come out at later stages down the, down the road. Cause I, I also think that it's almost like they come out of these ideas come out of conversation as well. And like experiences and, and observations of other people's work. And it's kind of almost like you can't, you can't completely own that creative inspiration. You kind of have to, um, be perceptive to how other people might kind of
1: bring that about in your mind and how it comes about conversationally as well. Yeah, I think that's the importance of, um, um you know, I think I've benefited from, I suppose, learning my professional practice has always been collaborative because I've always worked with Ed, my business partner, so I don't really know any other way of working. So I can't imagine, for example, and particularly, you know, like starting your own thing and working on your own, when you need a sounding board, it must be really tricky.
4: Yeah, I guess for various reasons, that's kind of why I, I tend to find myself, um Trying to bring new voices into my work. It's not, it's not really an intentional thing to, I want to be the champion of other voices. It's just to counteract this exact thing that you said, which is it's quite lonely to be doing something in a silo. It's, it's a funny one, like reaching out to people and trying to cultivate that conversation because quite often if you're not doing strange things as a designer, you're probably not doing enough. Um, so then when you're doing strange things in new places, it's like, how do you bring voices in that can really engage with what you're doing and kind of like bounce ideas off of them?
0: Mitzi, how does that feed into your work?
4: Because a huge part of
0: Where Are The Black Designers is spotlighting and championing other creatives.
3: For me, it's like, I definitely want to set up one, an environment where people feel very very comfortable that's one thing and then two i want to get as many voices in the room to um create something that is so just inclusive um because i think the thing that really frustrated me when i created where the black designers was the fact that as designers and you know our day to day job and the products we put out there they're usually designed by a homogenous group of people so I was like, I don't ever want to do that. So when I'm doing a collaboration, I just want to be like a playground for people. And I want to invite people to come in and collaborate with us and just, just feel free to like experiment with whatever idea they want, whatever event that they want to put together, but also connect them with people who can really bring, uh, different perspective who can really bring just like a more inclusive approach so that it feels good for everyone.
0: Can I ask how comfortable all of you feel with this kind of language of creativity being used around design? Because I I think it's interesting. Personally, I I have a real issue with it. I find it deeply irritating at times that our field is described as the creative industries. And I think for one one reason is I I think it neglects a huge amount of the work that designers are actually doing as part of it, which I think you all described really well. And I I think it's also, I, I know it's not intended this way, but there's a certain arrogance to it to describe these as the creative industries when, you know, fields like the sciences have an enormous amount Of creativity going on in there, I I personally have always found it a slightly awkward fit, and and I wondered how you feel about your design work and and what you bring to projects being described in terms of creativity.
1: I'm a bit like you; I don't like the term at all, really, because for me, it's just like breathing. It's like, yeah, we breathe, so everyone breathes. Everyone's create, create. Everyone has this kind of creative thing, and we all, you know, we're born with it. In our education system, you get educated out of it to a large extent, unless you're special, like we are, right? Or you're just crap at maths or something. (laughs) But I, I think I still really consider it to be us to be in the arts, really, rather than in the creative industries. Because, you know, how can you really put what we do in the same category as other things within those groupings? I mean, we're, we're bringing not, we're also, we're bringing cultural relevance, um, you know, even in the hardest of industrial design, even, you know, for example, in the cameras that you're making, you know, there's something about today's a uh, society that's represented in those products. You know, it's a moment in time and you only capture that in the within the field of arts, I think, whether it's dance or whether it's, you know, painting or sculpture and design. You know, we are, it, it's much more to do with that relevancy than it is to do with pure problem solving uh, and economic benefit, I think. I'd like it to feel much freer than constrained. Andrew, how do you feel about it? Well, I guess when I was, you know,
4: through early education, it's almost used as a kind of a put down in a way. It's like, uh, oh, you're creative. Like you said, it's uh, those that can't do maths. Your only hope. Your only hope is he's good at drawing. He's really good at drawing.
1: You know, it's like, oh, thank God.
4: And then, and then I'm not sure if it's changed in my lifetime or if it's because I live in a kind of metropolitan bubble or I don't know, but um, it's almost like uh, brands have tuned into the fact that creative thinking has a direct economic benefit. And then suddenly it's kind of uh, tokenized. It's kind of like, you know, post-it notes are put on walls and, and people have certain titles that Sort of suggest they're more creative than others, um, but I kind of I, I I don't know if I've ever really engaged too much with it personally. Like the the output that I'm creating can be seen as creative, but what I'm consumed with while I'm doing the work is a, a lot more granular and and I I'd call it problem solving, but not even in a creative way. It's kind of just being efficient with with resources and time and trying to connect what I'm doing to the intention.
0: Oscar, how does it work for you at Polaroid? So for instance, when you're developing a product, you know, you've worked with external designers and external design teams. What kind of brief do you give them? How does that relationship work? What, what do you need them for? What
2: are they bringing to Polaroid? Apart from that one first product that we've done uh, with Teenage Engineering in 2016, it came out. Everything after that, we've uh, and and one more, which was kind of like this weird thing that I half designed myself, and probably our worst, our, our worst uh, looking one. Everything after that, I've done with with a with a guy called Ignacio Germada, who's a designer. Uh, was, long, long, long career working with a couple brands and doing a lot of, of things himself. Um, and he's, he's been with us now since basically, I think 2017 or, or 18, um, in some capacity and, and, and being kind of the, the him and, and, and after, um, another guy who's actually in London, Nick Woodley. And these, these guys together are kind of the, the team behind how ultimately our cameras Look, but also how they feel and how you use them and and, and all of that. And I, you know, I think it's the way that we work together is very much uh, kind of push and pull. If they're like completely left to their own devices, the the, the result isn't as good as when they get pushed a little bit. I, I'm kind of the engineering voice a little bit and the manufacturing voice. And I think that that's that's a really healthy tension. Um, to, to to basically get what we both want, which is the most like accessible. In some cases, the most accessible product that does the job well and is also beautiful. Um, but there's an incredible amount of trust. I think both ways. Over time, you build up that trust that I also have the same end goal in mind, which is to make something something incredible. Even if I do, you know, push it to to be a little easier to manufacture or a little cheaper. But
1: that's um that's creative leadership, isn't it?
2: I mean, I think juggling, juggling the different, um, the different variables is just such a big part of product, product design. And it's a very create, very, very creative. Like, you know, you need so many different solutions. And the funny, the beautiful thing is it's like an infinite problem, right? You can really reframe it and, and give people a different user experience and, 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 and jump over a certain problem in a completely different way. And I think that's really fun. Um, just to add to the previous question about creativity, I mean, we've had tons of debates about being for Creators and creatives and all of that. And I was very much fighting that idea that that limits us to the kind of the arts or, or, or whatever in terms of like design and, 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 and photographers and all of that. I, I think that creativity is so much broader than that to what you said at the beginning, which is like engineering is extremely creative. Uh, science is extremely creative. Architecture. I mean, there's, there's so many disciplines that require creativity and if you really want to be philosophical about it you could say that about every single uh profession or direction right and that's how i see it more um i don't think it's a good term for for just like that slice
3: the funny thing is i don't feel like i really use creative for myself that often in terms of how i feel about the word Creative. It's kind of the same way I feel about the word design and the fact that I see this everywhere. And I mean, I would agree that everything is designed, but it feels very overused as someone who really wants to establish themselves as a designer and envision herself in, you know, my own way as a designer. Coming from a marginalized community, I sometimes feel like depending on who's saying it, the word creative can belong to certain people. And depending on who you are, if you say you're a creative, some people will be like, are you really a creative? But like, if it's someone else, they'll believe it more. And I think I I think I'm coming back to race where I'm just like, I feel like white people are more likely to get away with being called a creative and just using that word as a blanket term to just be like, I I do whatever. While like when Black people call themselves a creative, they have to prove so much to do it. I think the last thing that I'll say too is when it comes to Blackness and creativity and what that means, it feels like it's for a special type of Black person. And that when I see highly seen creative projects done, whether it's in fashion, whether it's in design, entertainment, science. I see like the same group of black people all the time. I don't understand that because there's so many black creatives that I work with that just had this powerful talent to be able to express their creativity in such a powerful way. And I'm not understanding why that's not highly seen and why people can't re- recognize that as creative talent or like creativity and why it's so hard for people to recognize just all these different projects and and movements and and things that people do that's so creative. And so it can be a little bit maddening to like hear that word. It just feels like this privilege sometimes.
0: I think that's an important reflection around gatekeeping and the way in which this idea of creativity shapeshifts between contexts and between communities. And I think that it's vital for the field that it really consider how it can open itself up to more voices, because ultimately that improves the situation for everyone and the results that you then get from design become far richer and more interesting. Um, and, and I think that actually leads us into a different avenue of the conversation, because it, it's important to talk a little about what perceptions of what it actually is that designers do and what they can bring. Jay, yeah, I'll start with you, because I'm interested when you work with companies if they have a good sense of what you could do and what design could do for them because I thought it was interesting earlier on when Oscar mentioned Apple and I think Apple's a great example as people got very excited about those products but maybe took the wrong lessons from them to an extent. You know, Apple had a really integrated design team a lot of investment in that but I think a lot of people see Apple products and just say, oh yeah, you know, it looked cool we need someone to come in and make something look cool for us too. And I'm curious as to what kind of briefs you get and how people see it, because obviously you work with some brands that are very used to working with designers, you know, Vitra, people like that. But with MAP as well, you've also worked with brands for whom it's a slightly newer thing, right? You did a television with Sky, for instance, and I think that was their first external collaboration in
1: quite a while, at least. How do you think people see you? That's interesting, actually. When Sky approached MAP, it was some way from... It was actually quite a long way from a design brief in the sense that it was a business challenge for them to rethink and reshape and in their entire model, you know, until then they had been a, you know, they were a satellite dish and, and set top box company selling content through very, very straightforward hardware. Um, and they were, when we first met them, when map was first engaged, they were really at the point of pivoting to something completely different. And actually it was sort of us at, Pre, pre pre-designing, helping them with their, with their, um, strategy, really, the business strategy and what would be possible to do that. And actually, that's really, that's really fun. That's a really great part of design, I suppose, because it's applying what's, you know, our creativity to solve problems which aren't aesthetic. They still, they're formless, if you like, but they need ideas, you know, ideas and, and also guardianship. Um, but once you go into the design stage, I guess, um, They they were they're a company, Sky were a company who were actually um incredibly literate with design already. They really did know they have great people working there who really know what's what. And we've worked with plenty of people over the years where that hasn't been the case and actually you really have to explain, justify and persuade all the way almost all the way through to the end of a project. Which certainly wasn't the case with Sky. Um I actually really like working with people who who have fantastic ideas, like generally sort of owner entrepreneurs who are passionate about whatever it is that they've come up with, whether it's a hotel project or whether it's a product, some, you know, they're, they're passionate about something, but they don't really know where to go next. And it's then, you know, I think then to Andrew's point it's actually really lovely to create this collaboration of, or have their voice in working with our voices and that sort of that kind of collaborative effort of where design meets uh, enthusiasm and passion for something that's outside the realm of design that creates probably the most exciting outcomes.
0: I think this idea of collaboration is key, right? As to what amounts to a meaningful and strong collaboration, because we can have bad ones. You know, you can have collaborations that feel very superficial or which feel uh, rushed or not put together. And, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you see as making for a good design collaboration, because I know, for instance, you had a really interesting work in Paul Collectives exhibition as part of the recent London Design Festival, and that was you'd worked with a younger designer and produced some pieces. And the, the caption speaking about that and speaking about that process was an interesting one. And, and I think clearly positioned that collaboration had been positive for both of you. I, I wonder what about it made it that way. If you think there are certain features that you can tell, yeah, this collaboration is going to be worthwhile. This is working for both parties.
4: Yeah, I guess with with that specific collaboration, it kind of came from like looking back at the intentions. I was partnered with this, um, she was a student at the time who had very little experience in the actual making process, partly due to COVID restrictions and the fact that her workshops were shut. So I realized that the collaboration primarily was a transfer of practical skills. How can I give her some tools so that beyond our our collaboration, she can then... um make decisions in design on her own. What it meant was that all of the decisions in the collaboration answered back to that same point. We didn't try to make a really ambitious... We were making an object of furniture. We didn't try to make an ambitious object of furniture. Um, It started with, how do you join wood together? And how can I teach you the different ways that wood moves and interacts with itself when you create an object of furniture with it? And then... Give her that information so that in, in the collaboration, she can make the design decisions informed by, by a kind of knowledge base. Um, and then it meant that the, the resulting object kind of was just an embodiment of that experience between the two of us. And it wasn't my idea or her idea. It was just the consequence of our spending time together and, and working together.
0: And Oscar, how do you handle collaboration at Polaroid? I mean, you've spoken about those design collaborations, but also you collaborate with photographers, right? I mean, that's a big part of it, seeing what they do with the cameras and the type of images they produce. How do you handle that? And how, how do you make sure that those are strong relationships as well?
2: Yeah. So, so the product stuff is like my, uh, my day to day. Like I'm, I'm deep into that. This, the, the, how we collaborate with photographers. I'm not as involved in it day to day I can talk to how the team is doing that and, and, and what they're doing but I'm not the best person to explain that in detail but we basically have a team that works with a lot of photographers um, I've I've also urged throughout my time here to basically just get our stuff in the hands of, of great people and not ask for anything in return <laughs> as much as possible because I, I found that so many times it just turns into this like and for one Instagram post and it's like I I mean, at the end of the day, I think that's not even the most important bit. As long as they create something great with it, that's that's. I think we've already succeeded personally in terms of um, like a marketing effort per se. Um, and then there's just getting the the products out to 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 people to to enjoy them creatively, which I've always found to be very important. Um, I, I think you know just to pick up on something you said a while ago because I didn't want to interrupt. But you know the, this idea of doing the collaboration. Badly, companies coming in and, and, and doing it badly, I think the biggest difference that you see and to be honest i, I I've been very surprised with a couple of companies who've observing from 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 the sidelines I think they've I think it got a lot better. I think that the initial wave of let's make it look pretty was exactly that like they'd give them a, a an ugly box that was already all engineered and ready and said, "All right, designer, you make it pretty." Um, and it's already like way too late and they can like, you know, paint it red or they can add some curves to it, right? But, but I think that more and more people are learning that it's a collaboration that starts way earlier in the process of solving the form and function together to make something beautiful. And that like a lot of the beauty comes from that consideration and this, this, this thoughtful integration of designing for 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 a human, designing something beautiful, and engineering that together to make that possible. Um, And I think we got a lot better in that. We got a lot better at that as well. But I also see a lot of other companies that I think are doing a better job at it than I would have, I would have given them credit for, let's put it that way.
0: Mitzi, what's your feeling on how successfully companies collaborate with designers and value their work?
3: I feel like these days, companies don't really care about the value of designers. And it also depends on like who it is for sure, right? I can't tell if I'm just being pessimistic or something like that. But design feels so capitalistic these days. And very much like we need to make something for the sake of consumerism and not for the sake of, oh, this might be really, really cool. I have yet to come across a free product that was designed for the sake of just being free and fun. And even then, when you were talking about do corporations really value designers, I I mentioned a little bit that it also depends on who the designer is. When I look at big corporations and who they're collaborating with, I see the same Black people. A good example to me is when Pharrell was appointed to be the... uh creative director of the men's division of, like, Louis Vuitton. I love Pharrell. He's one of my biggest idols for, you know, um creativity. But at the same time, I was like, this is fashion design. He's very well known for, like, these creative adjacent things, but, like, not fashion design. I feel like I could probably bring up a good list of men's fashion designers that I know that could easily be just as powerful, if not just as good as being, you know, the creative director.
0: I think this feeds into one of the risks you see a lot with collaborations of this kind. Uh, What makes something a thoughtful and meaningful partnership and how do you avoid it feeling superficial? You know, what makes a designer actually embedded in that partnership in an interesting way as opposed to just being a marketing gimmick? Jay, what's your experience like with this? Because you, you've worked with a lot of different organisations. Uh, you were speaking before that when you start with something, sometimes it isn't a design brief, it may be looking at the company's organisational structure. And that's really important. And you can see how that ultimately leads to stronger work. But you can equally imagine, you know, a CEO or boardroom going out saying, why are we getting you to do this? You know, w- we pay management consultants to do that, or we have an advertising agency who does that. There's quite a lot of different professions that all seem to claim to be doing the same thing. D- do you have a hard time persuading people that this is, this is the work of design?
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. And actually, the people who you talk to within an organization is so vital to the success of the project, uh, which is sort of why I was going on a, on earlier about the founder or the CEO, because they're really the people who are ultimately not the necessarily the decision makers. Often they are, but they're the people who who are taking the risk. You know, the founder is no doubt had an idea burning away in their minds for for years and years and years and this is the moment of, of fulfillment for them so it's a deeply personal relationship which of which there's an awful lot riding on it now the ceo to a lesser extent is in that position where they're ultimately judged for the output or the outcome of the project and so it's really important to to have have them um uh feel really comfortable with you and comfortable with the process and i feel like the, um, the only way you can really do that is by working together, working really hard and being smart about it and actually just taking, taking the time to explain each step with them so that they actually feel that, um, they understand that they can see the value, and that they're actually enjoying the process, and also they can add to the process too. So it's not exclusive. They're not. I always feel like the best outcomes are when you truly integrate other people's thinking who aren't normally in that kind of category of creative thinkers, because they know they often add some of the the best observations and the best stewardship to projects too. Uh, I think the 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 people that you're referring to in terms of st- sort of external agencies that do strategy often find that they produce incredibly detailed research and wonderful documents that make great boardroom fodder uh, that can maybe give certain people in the boardroom confidence that it's the right direction. But um, I don't know. Uh, you know, I think we're all in the business of working with people who use um, intuition and heart more than kind of a hell of a lot of data to make decisions. Uh, and then finally, I felt like the ad agencies, um, the marketing people, um are are actually sometimes the hardest people to work for because they ultimately then have to represent your thinking, um, into the, into the board. Uh, to get decisions, to get the the thing, the, get go the go ahead, I suppose. And very often, I think there's a predisposition for them to be a little less trusted than normal in the C-suite. So that's why it's important to go directly <laughs> to the CEO or founder. And I, as I said, those relationships and those projects are often the most fulfilling and generally the most successful.
2: And the, and the more you have this thing of of the trust that you just said, the more the data starts coming in. Like, oh, we need the data. We need to user test this. We need to tell a bunch of you know, we need to ask a bunch of people if it should be pink or blue. And it's like, yeah, that tells you very little, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I, it's really terrifying, actually, isn't it? In a way, you just want to go. You need to find people who you can you trust, who have actually got a really great track record of doing things right. And people who are really going to genuinely put the time in to share the experience and share the, the pain of de- developing products. Cause it's not easy. It's really, really tough to do it, to do a good job.
0: Andrew, have you had experience of these kind of more brand collaborations and what would what would stand out to you as a positive within that? Because I suppose the more socially minded collaborations like the the partnership with the younger designer you described, you had another really interesting project called the Farm Shop, which you were one of the designers participating and responding to a particular locale in a sense, with that kind of more social engagement, there's less that can go wrong, right? It's more when bigger companies start coming in, money comes in where, you, where a collaboration might start to feel uneasy, or there might be aspects of it where you think like, I just don't know if this is a good fit. What would you look for in a collaboration with
4: that kind of brand? As I said, I'm quite early stage uh, product designer. So I haven't really had to deal with the pressures of huge budgets or expectations from boardrooms, but it is, it is a kind of world that I'm, I'm aiming my decisions now towards and trying to make kind of smart moves now so that I don't have to relearn everything when I'm in those situations. Um, I think the, the closest I've come to it was I, I worked on a kind of accelerator scheme called Italian 100, which was, uh, run by, a collaboration between Ikea and H&M and actually the stakes were very low, like the, the, the kind of the budgets involved were low, the expectations were low because it was the first time they'd done it, so they didn't really know what they wanted, but I guess the kind of experience I was left with was, um, it was a positive one, but it was positive because I kind of quite early on made sense of what they were trying to achieve and what I was trying to achieve. And I kind of made a point that those things were really closely aligned. So I wasn't trying to like use the opportunity to kind of do something over here, but it kind of served everyone's interests, And it meant that they kind of fed into what I was doing and I could kind of tick some boxes for them as well. Well, Jay, uh,
0: this is something I'd maybe like to throw to you because I'm interested in so far as we talked about one reason brands might want to work with designers is because they bring value, right? And that value is often expressed in terms of, well, we're going to sell more of this product. But I'm curious because often maybe the right design decision with the product or the right thinking won't necessarily result in it being more profitable. And and thinking in terms of, say, consumer electronics... Business-wise, there's as a bit of an incentive there for yeah. We just need it to look a bit different because we're doing a new model next year, and that's that's kind of how it's structured. There's a churn. Whereas I think, you know, a lot of designers now would be saying actually we need to make sure this thing is repairable. We need to make sure it lasts longer. That it's not going to be replaced in a years time. Do you ever experience tensions with that? That what brands perhaps want from you. Clashes with what you maybe feel you want to do as a designer.
1: Yeah. Well, that is happening in the furniture business now more than I've ever known it before as well. So it's not just consumer electronics. I mean, sadly, I think, um, I think we find ourselves in the position now of actually turning down things. Yeah. It's really, it's actually very tricky. You know, we've been in the situation where we've had to try and persuade companies to not proceed with a project because it isn't right for them. Uh, even if it meant that we did ourselves out of a project um, and that's that's happened you know that 's happening increasingly really where we where we can see that it is a really that they're, the project that they 're even conceiving considering isn't really the right angle and we so we try and persuade them to kill it off and then maybe just go right back a little bit a few steps back and rethink what it is that we want to do whether then that 's actually in industrial design but it 's also happening in furniture design a lot where we 're often being asked to work on projects where I can already see the market's totally saturated, and to your point, I don't just want to do a another one of those that's going to be 20 euros cheaper wholesale. And but don't worry, because it's blue, or it's the, or or you can, or the unique thing is that you know you might be able to, and I don't know, choose six six fabric colors or something. Or no, it, it's um, it's 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 not. It's really you have to be really really careful. I think that you choose to work on uh projects which um uh, really justify their existence i mean one of the one of the ways of justifying it is to be for you as a designer to be confident that the company that you're working with really has the best intentions to deliver a product which is going to have a, that's going to last a really really long time so that it's not only good for the environment, because it's not a throwaway, but it's good for you, especially if you're on royalty, because you you know, you know want to be backing something that's going to be in the market for for a long time that will give you a little bit of revenue, but will also help make your name uh, or get your own kind of design view on the world out there. Um, but I would say now more than ever, across the board, there is an inclination to, to be adopting more of the fashion world's approach.
3: And I think that's where like capitalism and consumerism is so toxic to creativity because it really takes away people's sense of like limitation sometimes on like when to stop. When is, when is it going to be enough? We already have limited space on this earth. Why do you need more? Why do you need to take so much more when it's like you already have so much. And at that point, I don't think that we are at the conversation where or even a point where people understand how to shift power and privilege.
0: And Oscar, how do you handle that at Polaroid? Because the temptation to to put out something new, to have that kind of novelty so people get speaking, that that must be quite alluring, right? If you can put something out there, it's a way of getting in the press, people seeing the brand. Is, is that a challenge to know when it's actually best to hold back and not necessarily just do something for the sake of doing it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think everything we, we do, like the iteration stuff, it's very much around wanting to improve something that has some sort of value. I mean, I think a really good example of, of this is improving the photo taking quality and moving from u- micro USB to USB-C. Um, and then we also changed the plastic to be 40% recycled on the outside, but we didn't update the, the, like the design. We just called it the same product name, but just generation two. And we've, we've had these improvements and that was kind of the approach we took. And, it, and it, honestly, we had some debate about even whether that's enough to call it a gen two product. Uh, but we figured, yeah, it, it probably is with the uh, recycled plastic and, 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 and like all those three things together. It's an interesting one. I mean, I, I have so many ideas of what else to do. And I think we, we as a company have so many ideas on like what other new things to do that we've never kind of were like, all right, let's like update this thing to, you know, be slightly different and call it another product, even though it's the same one underneath. I think funnily enough, Polaroid did that a lot. <laughs> the old Polaroid. I think nineties, two thousands Polaroid was very good at just like skinning stuff. Um, you know, here's the new, like, pink version, blue version. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, we do new colors and our sales uh, team is always asking us for new colors and more colors and, and all of that.
1: But we try to limit it to, to when it really makes sense. We do that too, though. I mean, we do that on the color point. I think that's not that's also part of just giving the product a longer life cycle or reactivating it. I mean, we do we do all the color work for Ramoa on the suitcases, and we do tons of bellhops for Floss in different colors. And so, I don't. I think that that's. um, I don't necessarily feel like there's anything wrong with that because the intrinsic thing, the basic product, is stands up. And so, just offering it, just offering a great product in a different range of colors is actually totally legitimate, in my opinion.
2: Well, yeah, and, and you're not, you know, you don't need to invest in all the new tooling and everything, which is probably arguably sure. worse for the environment. I mean, generally making products nowadays, it's hard to justify it in your mind how this is, you know, you're just minimizing the 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 impact on the environment just by making it. You know, like if we wanted it to be super, super um, helpful to the environment, we just shut down, right? Like, let's not make anything. You have to truly believe that the thing that you're making needs to exist.
0: Well, I think maybe that's a good point to wrap the conversation. We've covered a lot of ground in tackling this idea of creativity and how it's used differently and how it can interact with brands. I think one thing that came across in all of your answers was just the importance of relationships to this. It's easy to imagine sometimes design and creativity is this sort of spark of genius out of the blue. But I think something that was stressed very much was a lot more of it is really about managing relationships between the client and the designer, between material and form, how you bring all of these things together and provide order and then I think at the end as well this notion of the relationship between the different people involved in a project how that shapes it and how that lets it evolve over time and also the relationship with the customer, the ultimate end user, what we've talked about the need for honesty and transparency about what something is and what they're coming to. So maybe in framing these ideas of creativity this notion of relationships and thinking about interpersonal connection is a good one. Thank you all of you for your time and for joining us on this episode of Where Next? Conversations with MAP Project Office and thank you to the listener for joining us too. Thank you for listening to Where Next? A podcast made in collaboration with MAP Project Office. The series is hosted by MAP along with me, Ollie Stratford. It's produced by Evie Hall with editing by Laura Chapman and mixing by Oscar Hjalm. To catch our next episode of Where Next, you can follow Map Project Office on Instagram at, at MAP O. That's O for office. And you can also subscribe to the podcast by following the Senio Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever
4: you get your podcasts from.